Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Commons contains instances of anti-Black language and slurs, which could be difficult to hear for some listeners. Bob Dawson found hockey in the same way many kids do. In terms of hockey, instead of growing up, play road hockey with neighbors, and eventually that sort of captured my, my interest to the point where in the winters, as a young person, I would spend hours on a nearby lake and in ponds, uh, sort of honing my skills. In terms of hockey, I'm a bit of a, a late bloomer. I didn't start playing organized hockey till I was about 14. And uh, I played minor hockey in, uh, in Dartmouth, which is where I was born and raised. Despite starting out later than some of his peers, Bob was good. And he came to love the sport. And from there, the interest grew. Going to high school, I ended up playing uh, high school hockey. And then uh, eventually, uh, upon graduating from high school, I uh, decided uh, I would give uh, university hockey a try. But in one very important way, Bob's experience was not like his peers. I was the only Black at that time playing organized hockey. But that didn't stop him from pursuing his dream. When I went to St. Mary's in uh, 1967, I, uh, among 40 other players, had went out, tried out for the team. Luckily enough, I was uh, one of, uh, of many who made the team. I was the first Black to play in, in the Collegiate Hockey League with St. Mary's at that time. And looking back on it now, there was so much that he loved about it. I have very fond memories of it. I was welcomed, I was accepted by the team, by the university. But that acceptance wasn't universal. It was a challenge in terms of gaining acceptance and respect among opposing players and teams. I can recall the first game I played was at the uh, University of Prince Edward Island. This is probably in uh, 68. During the warm-up before the game, I was skating around with the rest of the players. And I heard from the, the spectators, nigger, coon, spook, snowflake. And um, during the course of the game, I would hear uh, nigger from some of the opposing players. And they got very abusive and physical with me to the point of you know slashing me behind the legs and uh, doing what they call a slew foot, which means they would come up behind you and knock the feet from underneath you. It wasn't something that I didn't expect because my early experience in growing up had sort of prepared me for those kinds of things. That was a a rather interesting introduction to university hockey. I don't think many people would be surprised to learn that hockey in the 1960s could be a hostile world for a young black man. After all, Of the estimated 7,000 people who've played in the NHL, only around 100 of them have been black. That's a shockingly low number compared to any other major North American sports league. 
But what Bob Dawson didn't realize when he was helping break down barriers was that there was no good reason that he should have been one of the first. Because the sport that we call ice hockey was invented right where he was raised, in Nova Scotia. And not only were black Canadians right there at the beginning, they were absolutely central to what it would become. I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. More after the break. This episode is brought to you in part by BetterHelp Therapy Online. BetterHelp is therapy online that has served over 3 million people worldwide and is available to consumers in Canada. Now, therapy is awesome. I truly think that everyone should give it a try at least once. It's important to take your mental health seriously, and BetterHelp is here to make that easier for you. If you've been considering therapy, BetterHelp is an affordable and convenient way to get in touch with professional therapists. You'll get access to a huge database of therapists, and you can switch therapists at any point if you don't feel you're getting enough benefit. And BetterHelp is therapy at your own pace. It's guaranteed to fit your schedule because you get to decide how often you want to communicate with your therapist. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com commons. That's BetterHelp.com commons. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. George and Daryl Fosty wanted to write a book about the history of hockey. So they started back in the day, way back in the day. We wrote a book called Splendid as the Sun, the 5,000-year history of hockey. That's George Fosty. He and his brother Daryl are Canadian-born historians and authors who have spent their careers researching and reviewing thousands of books and catalogs on hockey. It went back 5,000 years to the ancient Sumerians. And along the way, there was 48 specific cultures across uh, four or five continents. And in those uh, areas, you had these hockey traditions. It's safe to say that the origins of hockey are incredibly contested. And sure, we could go all the way back to the Sumerians, but I'll believe it when I see an ancient Sumerian take one top shelf. Some people claim Scotland or England. They're wrong. That's just field hockey that happened to be played on ice. North America has the strongest claims to the modern game. 
the International Ice Hockey Federation has stated that the first organized game took place in Montreal in 1875. But there's something a bit strange about that story. All the sticks were brought in from Nova Scotia, and the game was played using so-called Halifax rules. The best evidence we have is that ice hockey, the kind that's played today by kids in Timbit leagues and by Connor McDavid and Evander Kane in the NHL, arose in Nova Scotia. And while the Fosties were delving into the many myths surrounding the beginnings of hockey, they came across something they hadn't encountered before. Among those cultures, we found some vague references to an all-black hockey league that existed up in Nova Scotia. And after about two years, we realized there's a lot more to this story than what we thought. They soon found some photographs of black hockey teams. So they approached some other hockey historians. We said to these guys, hey, you know, can you identify these teams? Do you know anything about these? We were told these were vaudeville acts. There was no such thing as black hockey. Blacks didn't play hockey. Their ankles were too weak. We were told every stereotype you could imagine. What the Fosties had come across were photos of one of the first organized hockey leagues in the world, made up entirely of black players. But before we get to that, we first have to understand exactly how hockey arose out of the very particular world of 19th century Nova Scotia. It makes sense that this is where the game took root and started, just because of the consolidation of forces, of the economic and the social and military and the political. And Nova Scotia was the most important colony prior to Confederation in North America because of its natural military purpose. At the time, Nova Scotia was inhabited by a variety of different people. Alongside the white settlers, there were British military men passing through, black loyalists, Jamaican maroons, and formerly enslaved American refugees had created independent black communities, and the Mi'kmaq, who had inhabited the region since time immemorial, remained rooted to their land. And it's from the interactions of all of these peoples that ice hockey emerged as we know it. The British military officers brought with them some knowledge of field hockey, a far inferior sport that was played at posh English schools. But long before Europeans arrived, Mi'kmaq played a version of proto-hockey using curved sticks carved from single pieces of wood. It was those sticks that were imported into Montreal in 1875 for that so-called first game. In addition to the sticks, Nova Scotia was at the center of an emerging ice skate industry. Well, you got the Star Manufacturing Company out of Dartmouth. 1860, I, I read some statistics somewhere they had sold uh, over a million pairs of skates. That one company out of Dartmouth. And that company doesn't get a lot of play in Canadian hockey history, but it was a mass-produced product. They were just down the road from the black communities. They're down the road from the Mi'kmaq communities. They were on the Dartmouth Lakes. That whole area was influenced by that. And everybody by the 1860s would have been skating in and around that place. And the average skate was for about 25 cents for a skate, which was uh, probably uh, uh, about two days wages at the time for the average person. These were the necessary conditions for the creation of hockey. Mi'kmaq sticks, British rules, mass-produced skates, and Nova Scotia's many frozen ponds and inlets. Necessary, but not sufficient. 
because the essential part of any sport are the people playing it, and black Nova Scotians proved to be some of the best. It's impossible to trace who the first black hockey players were, but we know that by the 1890s, many black players were already outclassing their counterparts. And that's where we think the roots of black hockey came, somewhere in the 1870s, early 1880s, with this first generation of black kids coming up after, you know, after the American Civil War, after the emancipation, after the expansion of, uh, of the harbor facilities in uh, Halifax, where you had an influx of, of black stevedores and workers coming in uh, to work for the British uh, Navy, etc. There's so much we don't know about this period in time, but here's what we do. By 1895, the Coloured Hockey League was up and running, and it was one of the first organized hockey leagues in existence anywhere. Now, the main reason I wanted to do an episode about this incredibly important league is so that I could talk about the buried history of the links between hockey and black resistance in Canada. And we're going to get there. But first, we need to talk about the actual hockey that took place on the ice. These guys were skilled because you can't innovate unless you know how to play. These guys would have grown up playing uh, hockey on the ponds. And they brought that pond style of play into the field. Because if you look at uh, the Dartmouth, Nova Scotia newspapers, the earliest account of what appears to be a slap shot is around 1892 in one of the newspaper accounts. Here's Daryl Fosty. What you have to remember, what they were doing is not a, uh, so much as a formalized game like the white leagues. They allowed the looseness with the rules, even though they had the same officials. They had the white, white officials from the local white leagues officiating these games, they didn't officiate them in the same manner. They allowed for them to have a a looseness with with their rules. And and because of that, you ended up with inadvertently having uh, innovation. Take a look at the the idea of the slap shot. You have a type of prototype of a slap shot going on. In the white leagues, they would restrict how high you could lift the stick. You couldn't lift the stick above the waist. In the black leagues, you saw that was being done. Even if you're not a hockey fan, you know what a slap shot is. It's easily the most iconic move in the game. But black players didn't just innovate on offense. It was goalies in the Colored Hockey League that first went down on the ice, inventing what became the butterfly style. Patrick Waugh and Roberta Luongo are indebted to these black Nova Scotian goalies. These flopping goalies, well, you know, if you're playing on a lake and uh, suddenly the, the puck slides past you, you're going to have a delay a game maybe for the next uh, 15 minutes while you chase that puck up the ice in, on a lake, right? Uh, so a flopping goalie on a pond in Dartmouth makes a lot more sense because you don't want to have a delay a game on the ice and chase a puck half, half a mile down the, down the bank. So these are the kind of things that would make total sense as pond hockey uh, innovations. And when they bring them into the arenas, what are these guys doing? They're bringing their game to the arenas. Altogether, these games with all-black teams are the closest thing we have to today's game from this earliest era. The legacy was, when you look back now, these guys had a prototype of, of, of what modern hockey was going to become. The officiating allowed so much to go on. They allowed the physical element to become uh, exaggerated to, to the point of you know, the commentary that in the newspaper saying it was calling it ridiculously exaggerated to the point where the whole games were affected just by almost uh, uh, complete brawling on the ice. Because these are deeply personal leagues. You've got families, you have churches, the rivalries. These are not 
artificial constructs like a Boston was going to, to play Dallas, you know, in a hockey game. These are real rivalries. And the games themselves were extremely popular. I think that's what makes it exciting because the people that are coming to the games, and they're averaging two to three times more people go to their games than the average white league. There wasn't the regimented rules that, uh, that slowed down the game or made it uh, an elitist type of uh, sport to watch. So what was this league that was such a forerunner for the rest of hockey history? The first thing to know about the Colored Hockey League is that it was about far more than just hockey. You don't have to look any further than the team names and the logos. Let's start with one of the most famed teams, the Africville Seasides. So you've got the double S sewn on those jerseys, and they call themselves the Seasides because the town of Africville was on the coast. But the double S had a totally different meaning for a black person watching it than it would be for a white person. That was the slave stealer sign. And what happened was when these slave hunters found a slave emancipator, anybody that was trying to free slaves, they would brand them with a double S on their hands or on their forehead. The Mossback, the name of the uh, Hammond Plains Mossback team, moss grown on the north side of trees at night for uh, slaves when they're going north, fleeing to Canada, they knew that moss grew on the north. So if they were in the woods, they just had to touch the trees to figure out where the moss was and know what direction to go. You've got uh, the West End Rangers. Their uniforms were the same color as the, as the jerseys worn by uh, the uh, Ethiopia Regiment that was evacuated out of New York during the fall of New York City in around 1790. And so you've got all of this going on simultaneously. All of this points to the fact that the Colored Hockey League wasn't just a league. It was an independent black civil institution in Nova Scotia. There was a black middle class in Halifax. There was families like the Taylors and the Browns and the Carberries who uh, actually owned businesses in Halifax. Many of them were educated. They had been educated through the churches and and public schools. So what you have is a high literacy among the black community, higher than other areas of North America. You have these, uh, the, the power and the wealth of this community starting to rise up. And I think that ties to the fact that this league existed. Because when you're living hand to mouth, and trying to survive, you're not playing sports. You're not going out and trying to build your community. You're not trying to preserve your history. You're not getting involved in politics. Many of the league's founders were influenced by Booker T. Washington's black nationalism that focused on economic uplift and self-reliance. There were business owners, community leaders, and civic activists. Many were politically active in the Nova Scotian Conservative Party. An independent hockey league was a marker of the community's success in a symbol of how hard they had fought to carve out a place for themselves in Canadian society. They had to seize their rights. It was never given to them. It wasn't a right bestowed upon them. They fought to get there. They fought to build their league. They fought to put their families together. And even and that's one of the biggest aspects of the Colored Hockey League was, was just what it really meant to these people because it was theirs. By the early 1900s, the league was thriving. Here's Bob Dawson again who alongside having played hockey back in the 60s and 70s, is also a hockey journalist and historian. Between the 1900s and 1905, the the league itself was um, prospering thanks to the the work and the leadership of uh, James Robertson Johnson, as well as James A.R. Kenny. They were sort of the nucleus that really drove the Colored Hockey League And it uh, established it along professional lines. 
and, and it was doing well. As I said, it was prospering. The media was picking up the games. The, the games were uh, outdrawing white senior hockey teams at the time because of the environment they had set for the games. But the league was about to fall victim to the racism and greed of the era. Here's what happened. What you had is uh, an attempt to uh, create a, a railroad system across the province of, of Nova Scotia, from Halifax Harbor all the way to Montreal and points west. If you look at the gradients of the region and the, and the soil conditions and the rocky nature of, of Nova Scotia, there's very few areas where you could put a railroad through without major difficulty. So what do you do? You go along the shoreline. Where do you go? You go down Bedford Basin area. You go through the community of Africville into Halifax, which is on the harbor. It's easy to put those tracks through, right? The problem was by putting railroad tracks through Africville, you're putting it through the backyards of the, of the black families that own those lands. Those are lands that were ceded to those families for their military service during the War of 1812 and also during the War of uh, the American Revolution. Those are lands granted to those families by the British monarchy. So what did they do? Suddenly those deeds, those declarations disappear. They go and say, oh, you don't, you don't own that land. You guys are interlopers. You guys are uh, vagabonds living on the shoreline. We can't find your records. So that's the first thing to do is they deny them their actual ownership. The second thing they did to these families was they tried to use public domain or eminent domain arguments, saying, no, we have to have this, you have to be forced out. But the problem they had was these families, the Browns and the Carveries, these were families playing the Colored Hockey League. These were middle-class families. These were educated families. They decided they were going to fight. They're going to fight the city of Halifax and the, and the, the political elites that were trying to get the railroads through and they wanted to hold onto their land. And so as a result, how did they break, break up those families? They, they destroyed the Colored Hockey League. They prevented those guys from earning an income. 1908, they went into the Green Market in Halifax, which was a predominantly a farmer's own association with a large number of black families where they sold their wares. They went and they took that over, prevented these people from selling their, their produce the market, denying them an income. They uh, used immigrants to uh, take away the jobs on the docks so that uh, suddenly where blacks used to work as, uh, you know, as stevedores on the docks there and unloading ships, suddenly it was immigrants being used to do that. In order to gain the land, they broke the families economically and forced them off their lands, forced them to sell their lands or give away their lands. There were repercussions that the league eventually felt at that time. The owners of the, the rinks were white. And uh, consequently, uh, the, the teams within the Colored Hockey League, particularly in the Halifax-Dartmouth area, they had limited access to uh, the ice time. Any time they had to play, basically, was later on in the evening after the white teams finished their games. As it happens, the, the white teams were given priority over the black teams in terms of prime time ice periods. As a result of that, you had a falling off of attendance at the games. There was a, a downturn in terms of media coverage of the games. Things were spiraling to the point where the league was unsustainable to the point where it was in a state of decline, you might say. That seemed to be one of the, the major factors that led to the gradual decline of the league. It was an organized effort on multiple fronts 
You destroy the league, you destroy their background, you destroy their economic resistance, and you take over the land. We had something very special there, and it was taken away. And it was taken away not just in 1906, 1908, when they shut these guys out of the leagues or out of the arenas for political and uh, economic purposes, but also years later when they sent the bulldozers into uh, Africville and they tore down what was left of the black communities. To me, that's one of the greatest tragedies of Canadian history is the loss of the Colored Hockey League and the loss of Africville and the loss of our understanding of the links that tie these families from the American Revolution all the way up to the present. The Colored Hockey League limped on until the 1930s, but in a severely diminished form. And with the destruction of Africville in the 1960s, the pivotal role that black Canadians played in the creation of hockey was largely forgotten. But in the last few years, because of the work of the Fosties, Bob Dawson, and many others, there's been a revival of interest in this league. And here at Commons, we wanted to see how all of this was being memorialized by the hockey establishment. So we took a visit to hockey's most sacred temple, the Hockey Hall of Fame in downtown Toronto. Is a Hall of Fame a museum? I think so, yeah. A Hall of Fame, this is a museum. Yeah. Oh, the Hartford Whalers. That, like, great jersey. We wandered past the jerseys and goalie helmets through the replica Montreal Canadiens locker room until we got to what we were looking for. Okay, now we're getting into some history. Here, let's take a look at this origins of hockey section. This is talking about some of the first organized leagues, 1886 to 1915. Some of the ones they mention, the Amateur Hockey Association of Canada, which is a three-team league around Kingston. Okay, so here we have 1896, two leagues would begin playing Nova Scotia, while the Winnipeg Victorias would earn the Stanley Cup. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's any mention, at least of the Colored Hockey League which would have been just around the exact same time period that we're talking about here. Yeah, and certainly would have fallen under the purview of organized leagues. But we kept looking, and we were surprised to find that there was a section discussing the Colored Hockey League. Oh, here we go, Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes. Ah, yes, okay, so this goes in the diversity section. Yeah. Of course. All right, well, let's take a look at the changing face of hockey. Formed in the 1890s by members of Nova Scotia's large black population, descended from Americans who fled slavery, the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes was a racial byproduct of the Victorian era. Segregation of perceived inferior peoples by white Anglo society forced black hockey players to create their own league. By the late 1920s, the CHL came to end as black players began to acquire spots on traditional all-white minor league teams, while mainstream society's racist attitudes towards black people playing professional hockey and other pro sports continued. I do think what this misses is the deliberate destruction and attacks against the Colored Hockey League as an independent black institution. Yeah, and I don't think it's a fair characterization of how that league ended to say that those players were just being accepted onto how to phrase it, acquired spots on traditional all-white minor teams. Like, that's not exactly how it happened. It is clear that they've made some efforts to include the history of things like the Colored Hockey League into it. Like, I'm trying to be a little bit generous to the museum because it's not like they have a really big history section, you know? It's not like they're really guiding you through the story of hockey. I mean, the panel on just, like, the origins of hockey is pretty tiny, you know? But thinking back on it, What I find most irritating about that exhibit is that it's in the diversity section. 
the Colored Hockey League wasn't some sideshow to the main event of white hockey. This was a foundational league where significant parts of the game were formed. And the way that league was targeted by the white establishment is reflective of the racism that black players faced over the next hundred years. To George Fosty, the Colored Hockey League is proof that hockey is never just about hockey. We celebrate the hockey tradition we think is cute. It's more than cute. It's a, it's a statement of who we are, where we were, and where we're going. And it's important that we recognize this history, and we preserve this history, and we go out and research more of this history. Because like I said, when we discover what we have lost, maybe we'll take some a better appreciation of who we are and what our history truly is. Because as I said, not many Black people, let alone whites, were aware of the significance of that history and the importance of that history. As they say, history not shared is history lost. Also, in terms of the recognition of the importance of that league in the context of uh, hockey history, but sort of Black history in terms of the contribution of that league to the game as we know it today and how the, the descendants that played in that league defied racism and to be able to achieve what they had achieved in spite of that. So for me, it's, it's a critical piece of history. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Daryl Fosty, George Fosty, Bob Dawson, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Archie, at Candleland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Edgefor, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.